Hi, podcast listeners. I wanted to apologize for the website craziness the last few weeks. Many of you might have noticed that when you went to download an episode from the Year of Polygamy podcast, our servers were a little bit overwhelmed. That's great news because it means the podcast is more popular than ever. It also means we've had to migrate our server. I want to personally thank Adam Groves for doing that for us. So give Adam all the praise. Send all your blessings in good faith to Adam Groves across the interwebs. This feels like a really great time to ask you listeners to commit to making a donation to the Year of Polygamy podcast. I am not as good as other podcasts at asking for money. I need to be better. Something I still struggle with. Because this podcast costs money to run, host, and produce, hundreds of hours go into it. I travel all the time now to different communities, meeting with different people. It takes a lot of time and energy. It's changed my life. I would love to do it full time, but alas, for as popular as the podcast is, it's not in the cards. So I have to do this on the side, and I have to run a full-time job and raise my kids. If everyone that listened to this paid for their downloads, I could do this full-time. But a girl can dream. So consider a donation at yearpolygamy.com, or you can start paying per episode on Patreon. Become a Patreon subscriber by going to patreon backslash yearpolygamy.com. Those are two ways that you can give a one-time contribution or become a monthly subscriber. Thanks for listening and supporting the podcast. And just as a note, we're running the music contest for the bumper of this podcast. We have three fantastic selections that you can vote for. Go to yearofpolygamy.com, click on the music contest link, and vote for what you think the opening music should be. We're going to keep the contest open through April 1st. Thanks to all who submitted. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Year Polygamy podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay, and I'm bringing back a return guest, Dan Barlow, who's been on the podcast before talking about being in the FLDS. Dan, can you say hello? What's up, everybody? So we convinced you to come back for another, did we? Oh, it, it took a lot of convincing, but, uh, you know, I finally succeeded to you. I'm excited <laughs> to be back. Thank you for having me. Yeah, well, actually... Uh, your podcast is really popular. We got a lot of feedback. What's kind of a bummer about it is we've migrated our servers. So we lost a bunch of comments uh, uh-huh. where people were saying how much they loved your interview, which is kind of bad. So if you like Dan's first interview, leave a lot of positive comments and you can leave positive comments on this one as well. Dan, as you know, if you listen to his first episode, which I will link here, uh, has a really gifted way of telling the story of the FLDS. I think the way that you told told the story really resonated with a lot of people and helped fill in some gaps. And so I brought Dan back on to tell another story. And this is going to be a really hard story to tell because it's probably one of the saddest stories I think about the entire uh, situation happening in the FLDS. And and it's a story about family reassignment and what's happening to families in real time right now. And so it's going to be a little sad, a little bit of a downer. And but Dan, I think will help get us through it because he has, you know, very personal experience with this. So Dan, are you up for this depressing topic today? I, I'm ready to go. And I would like to say thanks for uh, all the positive feedback from everyone. I've had uh, a lot of people personally reach out to me as well. Um, and it means it means a tremendous amount to be able to uh, 
bring to light information that uh, generally can touch people's lives inside and outside of the community in a positive manner. So I'm I'm humbled to be a part of it, and I appreciate everybody's feedback on on the matter. So I'm so, ready to go. So give us a like brief, like three minute background on who you are for those who haven't listened to the previous episode. Who are you, and why are you on this podcast? Okay, so I am uh, Dan Barlow, you know, and uh, I'm from Colorado City, Arizona, um, also known as Short Creek. I grew my background is I grew up in the FLDS uh, with Warren Jeffs. My family are Barlows, very prominent name in the uh, polygamous societies inside and outside the FLDS. And my background is goes far as back as my third fourth grandfather live in polygamy so my roots are entrenched in polygamy and when i was 16 years old i was kicked out of the uh, flds religion and was sent to live in the outside world and that's where my experience started out here and so that is my unique background and i come from a family of 18 children and uh, two mothers very loving and wonderful family in in most regards but uh, my, my story definitely is is very interesting in nature and I've experienced some very unique things in my life in my short short time on earth. I'm I'm 22 years old now so it's not too far past me in this experience. So Yeah, and we were having dinner one night and you were telling me this story in more detail about your family and, and we're going to get into that a little bit later, but I think this story that we're going to tell today is probably one of the most important crucial stories of I think this whole community right now, and I, th- I guess I've never really focused on it because there's so much going on. And I now dealing with folks in the community, I've heard so many traumatic, awful, horrific things that you just sort of yeah. steal yourself to this <laughs> issue. And so I think families are getting reassigned and I don't think anything else about it because we're dealing with all of these other issues. And just having you sit down and sort of share what what this this idea of family reassignment looks like on the ground and how it affects individuals, it really struck me and I thought, wow, you know, I've sort of in my mind to cope with this, just sort of glossed yeah. over it. Like, yeah, that's a bad thing. Don't want to think about it, but right. it's rough. And so, Dan, why don't you yeah. I'm talking about family reassignment. No one knows what that is yet. We're gonna we're gonna talk about it. But let's let's start at the beginning. Let's talk about how family structures happen under, I guess, Uncle Roy, if you want to start there. How were families yeah. looked at? What happened if someone stepped out of line? Things like that. Well, the, I I would say in the Leroy Johnson era and even to somewhat of an extent in the Roland Jeffs area, the separation of families. And when we say separation, it could mean multiple things. It could mean a brother or sister is sent out of the home or multiple brothers and sisters leave, uh, which could affect the uh, family unit. It could be a mother is removed from the husband and the husband remains in the home with other wives, or it could remove, it could be the husband being removed and the wives stay together. And the worst case scenario is when the husband is sent away and then each wife uh, is married off to a different man. So it's a complete separation of the family. And also another interesting aspect with Warren Jeffs was he would tell the families to take on the new last names. And in some cases, the new husband would actually change the names of the children. So it's a dissolution of identity as well. And so there was a, a lot of emphasis later on with Warren Jeffs where 
a lot of his reasoning behind separating families, a lot of his commandment was to take away the identity to, you know, not speak of your old father, to not refer to yourself as his son, um, you know, take on the new last name, things of that nature, which really psychologically are are huge things to ask any person to go through that's, you know, so the, the tragedy starts in, in, in any of those scenarios, it, it's really tragic, whether it's brother, sister, father, or mother, and, or all of the above in some cases. So, what, One of the things that shocked me when I started getting, getting involved in this community was there are, you know, you go down and with the faithful FLDS in these communities, most people don't realize that the majority of the children there and the women are the women are not with their actual husbands and the children are not with their biological parents. Warren Jeffs has reassigned all the families, rearranged them, given children to different parents, giving different wives to different husbands. And it's gone on so long that there is a crisis of people coming out now who don't even know exactly who their full siblings are and who their half siblings are and and, you know, Terrell Musser talked about this, but when they go to date as, you know, teenage kids, it's like, what if you're my half sister? I, I have no idea. So it's like this human rights well, crisis. It, it actually goes a step further. They do date and they're their half sister. And, and there is the, you know, there's that issue of, of some inbreed, inbreeding going on as well, which is, you know, the people are also extremely innocent. And so how much is there to blame? But those issues are certainly arisen. Um, they certainly exist. So I I was going to say in my mind, like, well, where where did this practice start? But of course, we have, you know, on this podcast, we've documented Brigham Young was starting to do a similar form of this practice where if a wife didn't like her husband, if he was mistreating her, uh, she could go, you know, join another family. This this was not uncommon in the frontier era. Some women went through several families. They got married several times right. early. And there are some cases of Brigham Young telling a man he wasn't worthy. Uh, he, he tells it to mm -hmm. one of his polyandrous wives who was already married that he had a higher priesthood. And, and, and so it's not like there isn't a precedent for this. And of course, it, this happens yes. throughout the frontier, but we're going to talk about, let's talk about the evolution of how it started. And from my understanding, Dan, when Uncle Roy and Rulin did it, it was on a lower level. Like it happened sometimes, it was for yeah. egregious sin. And Warren really takes it to a whole new level. Do you want to talk about that? With Leroy Johnson and Rulin Jeffs, I think the separation of families that did take place was on the basis of a sin and confession where there was an issue to the point of no resolve and it's similar even in the LDS church you have you have sometimes you have people that are struggling their marriage to go seek counsel from a bishop and and confess to sins that they did that have would dissolve a marriage things of that nature so well actually let me just say this uh there was just a recent like it is uh March of 2018 and Mormon uh -huh. Leaks just released a a tape of an LDS woman being instructed I believe by her stake president uh, to leave her husband because her husband was a non-believer. So I do think you're right. right. I think it shows up everywhere. And um, yes, walk us through it though. So like, so let's say a, a, in Uncle Roy's time, a guy would have some sin. He would go and sit down and confess, and and what would happen? Right. Well, I can't necessarily say because I, I'm I'm very unaware of the exact circumstances or who was involved. I, I 
can only think of one or two cases off the top of my head that that actually happened in Leroy's time that I was aware of. And I don't know how those were handled. And so I wouldn't want to misrepresent the people involved because what we do know is that there's always one side that appears as if justice has been done. And then there's always the other side that feels that the most unjust thing happened to them. So I can't necessarily say how Leroy Johnson handled matters because I don't want to do, do the people involved wrong if I don't understand the situation. But what we do know is that with this, even in Leroy Johnson's time with the way that the religious structure was set up, the prophet had ultimate say. If circumstances were presented before him in certain matters, he would he would suggest certain things to happen that may not been have been just to the man involved for him to take away his family and and put these wives by the side of other men. I I don't understand all of those processes. And Warren Jeffs, I think, was a total different circumstance. And I think there was a lot of the things Warren Jeffs was doing with these families were for a total different reason than Leroy or Rowan ever had to do, you know. Um, Warren's, Warren's thought process on the matter, and this is my theory. People can take it or leave it, but I believe Warren Jeffs, one of his biggest things about separation of family was if you ultimately take young children and you remove any identity and attachment with any single person, they're at their most vulnerable state. And when they're at their most vulnerable state, he is free and clear to perpetrate the sins and evils that we already know he's guilty of. That's what ended up happening in the community is there's these homes that would be filled with teenage girls with no uh, no mothers there, no uh, people to look after them, no protectors. They're just, you know, all living there. And then teenage boys and, and young kids without fathers and mothers there to raise them up properly. They're being put in situations where they're vulnerable to Warren's types of sins and evils. And so I think that was his motivation. And Warren's motivation versus Leroy or Rowan would have di- different reasons for doing such. Okay, so tell me if this if this sounds accurate. So it sounds like um, I've heard a few stories, like you said, just a handful of every once in a while, if uh, you know a woman came in and said that she found out her husband was sexually molesting his daughters, he would be sent away and they would be right. given to a man with a higher priesthood. Or sometimes if there were other, you know, other issues of that of that nature, that would happen. We also know that um, sometimes it would be with if it didn't work, if they weren't compatible, they would go to a different, you know, marriage or sometimes join, be a sister wife with their sister, things like that. And now when Warren comes in, he starts doing that, but at a higher speed. So people would come in and complain Mm -hmm. and then Warren would reassign them. And, you know, I've I've heard this story now under Warren's reign from Everyone I know there, everyone I know there has had has been touched by this so much that it just. Oh, yeah. Like I said, you just get used to hearing it. You don't think you're like, well, of course, uh, you had a new father. (laughs) But walk us through just like give us a general scenario. So someone because we know we know what happens with Warren. So someone gets called into the bishop's office and it's usually someone who's a threat to Warren Jeffs. And what happens? Well, I'll just go with my own personal story of what has happened and what happened to our family, because I think it's a as great example as any, but it also portrays very rawly exactly what happened to other families as well. Our family is 
in a lot of ways, our family was blessed more than most. But I told on the last podcast how we would, my dad took us back to Omaha because he felt that after witnessing for the last year and a half and being involved in and being aware of men losing their families, and this would happen weekly, there would be, it was hundreds and hundreds of men to, to, to get a grasp on the amount of people that are being touched by this, you know, it, it's, let's say in a community of 8,000 people, there's a good thousand men that, that end up losing their family, or at least, at least in the 500 range. And we're talking men with families with 50 children, men and, uh, with families of 70 children, men with families of five children. It's a varying, there's a large variety there, men with three wives, men with one more five men with 10 wives it's it was very large scale in in the methodical process of warren jeffs and he started very quietly at first and uh you know he took 14 men and announced publicly that they were going to lose their families in a, in a saturday work meeting um though barlow men being some of them we had talked about that earlier as well um they lost their families and he the unprecedented move was to do it out publicly, but he took their wives and placed them by the sides of other prominent men in the community. And after that, it sort of became normal. It was, you know, I would go to missionaries uh, as a kid and we would go, we'd go to the homes of the members of the church Wednesdays and Fridays and, and bear our testimonies. And we would go to one home and then we go back there three months later and the husband would be gone and they would have a new priest at head because we had to fill out papers of, as a scribe when we went to these homes and there would be new priest at heads over these families and you would watch it change. And it was, it was completely normal. But what he ended up doing was continuing that process to the point where some women would go through two, some cases, three husbands. Children would be renamed, lose their original names. Fathers that would be sent away, they would be villainized. They had no opportunity whatsoever for association with their children. Um, and so they're being cut out of their lives very methodically and very dramatically at that. And give us um, an example of why, what his reasoning was. Like what, what would Warren say that they had done that was so terrible? Well, in some cases, it would be a revelation stating that these Two members, uh, whether it would be a husband or a wife or both in some cases, were guilty of murder of unborn child. Some of them were Which guilty of adultery. Which meant a miscarriage, right? What's that? Which meant a miscarriage usually? Well, yeah, that's uh, that, that would probably be the general uh, thing that they would be guilty of. You know, I don't know what people are confessing. I've never read the confession letters, but... We, that's the other thing that was so powerful is it's a two-part process where people are vilifying their own them themselves to Warren and Jeffs. And so if they if they paint a bad picture of who they are because they're scared and they write a nasty confession letter thinking that they're guilty of a tremendous amount of sin and they write, let's say someone had a bad thought, but Warren Jeffs translates in the confession letter to a, being a bad action. And then he villainizes them and he creates a revelation stating that they're guilty of murdering an unborn child where, you know, the crime probably wasn't even there whatsoever. So, yeah, it, so it gets real muddy and complicated. So there's varying reasons in every single case. Let's get into the story of your family. Um, 
we sort of just gave the or- overview. So like like I said, we need to keep in mind that the entire community is displaced. Nobody yeah. really is with their own family again. Oh, and I forgot. To, let's set this up too. Uh, people ask how a- adults and parents could do this. And, wh- and I'll let you weigh mm-hmm. in on that as well. But I wanted to say that the FLDS believe in what we call in Mormons in the United Order, the, the law of mm. Enoch, uh, the yes. law of consecration. And this is sort of this communal living where everyone gives of their goods and it's dispersed evenly, almost like Mormons hate it when I use this word, but like a, a communism <laughs> <laughs> in, in a way. Yes. Uh, Mormons hate that, but uh, that's kind right. of a way to explain it. So uh, Warren Jeffs and Rulin Jeffs started, well, Rulin Jeffs started what was called the United Effort Plan. It was not the United Order plan. It was the United Effort. It was an effort to live the United Order. So it was a recognition that the United Order was heavenly. It was the perfection. And uh, the FLDS were going to do an effort towards that. And in that, you have, I think, two generations of folks who started to believe that not only were they giving their time and their talents and their efforts to the church, they were also giving their families. Yeah. So you have an entire generation yes. now, and especially when Warren got rid of public education, where how would anyone know that they had a legal right to their children? They, a lot of these women who gave up their children did, didn't even know that they had a legal right to them. They thought that they belonged yeah. to the church. Well, if I, could, if I could say this real quick about Warren on that note, is Warren made religious precedents the number one thing in people's lives, and he was brilliant at it. Everything that he used was scripturally based. So he would, you know, when people, they, they have a full generation of people that fully believe they're trying to live the United Order. And then what comes along with that is, well, if we live in the United Order, then surely we're around the time of 2000. And a lot of the, the talk of the day was the coming of the new millennium and that Jesus Christ was going to return. And this was one of Warren's big playing cards in the way that he spoke to the people was, Jesus Christ is coming soon. And he even created revelations stating dates of when he would arrive and such. Um, and so I, it is my supreme duty and responsibility to clean up to the, clean up this people. And he called it a cleaning up effort. And if you go back into his sermons, he would con- continually speak about the cleaning up effort of this people. And he would state that his mission and responsibility that his father gave to him being Roland Jeffs, told Warren that his duty was to clean up the people and he was to be the prophet to usher in the new millennium. So his basis was scripturally based. And so if a man got kicked out, then you have this entire group of people that are fervent, that believe in this stuff. So if a man got kicked out, there's a total justification for it because they're cleaning up the people and it's a worthiness and unworthiness thing. And he, he set up a, system where the people that were worthy would look down on the people that were unworthy and would not feel guilty about it, whatever. In fact, they would feel that it was their duty to look down on the person that has been sent away. So when people do ask, how do mothers and fathers turn their children over to someone else and leave the community and never talk to them? It's because they themselves are inflicted with this mental disease where they believe themselves that they're doing it to gain them, their salvation for themselves and for their children. And they believe it's their responsibility because the prophet told them to, to be sent away. So you'll have father 
that gathers his children in a living room and tells them, I am an evil man and I am not going to talk to you again. Give them all a hug and walk out. With no conscious about it. I'm sure he hurts inside, but he goes and tells his children he's a bad man and then will walk out. And he'll leave them for years on end. And uh, it's because of the power of the religion, because of the power of the thought process. And it all starts with the United Effort Plan, because everybody uh, buys into this organization where we're going to become the people that God is going to use to redeem Zion. And so you're either in or you're out. And if you're out, then you're not going to be saved. It's it's so literal in its interpretation and the way that the people lived it that uh, hence it became the very thing that you know drove them to destroy themselves. You know, Warren Warren set this up so beautifully to have the people work in a machine-like fashion to do exactly what he wanted without any hitches. And if there was a hitch, all he needed to do was send them out. And you know. The people that are left in the FLDS are the remnants of the people that are still willing to do whatever it takes to obey Warren Jeffs. And, uh, you know, the people that have left have been lucky enough in their own right to recognize and to realize the, the tragedy that's happened in their own lives. But it's always too late. And it's always after so much hard experience has been gone through. and now people are left to try to put together pieces of their own family. Uh, a lot of people don't have their families back and a lot of young people don't have fathers and mothers. And it's just a, it's a nightmare of a mess. Yeah. And I'm hoping we can get into your story now. You've sort of set it up so beautifully how this has happened and how people could get in this mindset. And that's probably one of the things I resent the most is when, you know, people who are outsiders, talk about this community and they're like, well, why would anyone let that yeah. happen to their families? And to be clear, some people right. did resist and did leave, leave with their families, but I I think it's hard to understand um, what that sort of devotion looks like, what that sort of myopic um, life mm-hmm. looks like when you're, you're raised in it, you know, your whole life. Yeah, I, I, there's a hard, it's hard to find a description for people that didn't grow up in, in that lifestyle because it's hard for me to even comprehend my mindset you know because once your mindset sees once your mind sees the truth you cut you cut it's like breaking a dam of information into your mind and you can never go back into that mindset so I even look at my own life when I grew up in it and I can never revert back to that mindset I I can't think in my head I, I know why I did it sometimes I just get upset at myself that I was so dumb. But when you're when you're in there, you're fervent about what you're doing and you have this core belief because it's scripturally based in the way that Warren talks and he's in front of you every day, you're praying about him, uh you're listening to his trainings, you become drenched. But Warren Jeffs, uh, you know, one of the best ways to describe this is he inflicted thousands of people with a mental disease. It uh, It's extremely powerful in nature. And it continues even when you leave the community. You look at a lot of people that have left the community and they still continue the exact same mindsets they had inside the community, which are limiting mindsets. 
they're not willing to expand their their information that they're taking in and they're bigoted and they're opinionated and hard people to get to see the light and and that's been a difficult part of the healing process is a lot of people's reaction to the matter is to come out and just be try to be i guess in real plain terms hard asses and it just you know that's sort of the mindset that warren jeff's put into these people is it all seems good but you're so extremely fervent that you cannot you can't see past um you can't see past those vital things that you're missing out on that ends up affecting your family you know and then again and your hands are tied as well if you do see the truth in our in my own family situation which we're going to get into um where for instance my dad he did have an opportunity to see what was happening but the inevitable still happened to him even though he saw what was going to come happen he still lost his family and there was nothing he could do about it well that's um, a perfect so. segue why don't we start at the beginning a little bit and remember um some people might not have listened to the first episode so Give us just sort of a general overview of who your parents were and what they did for the church, and then what happened from there. So my my dad is a named Dwayne Barlow. My mother is uh, Cheryl, and they are um, they're both prominent, come from prominent families in the community. Both grew up and were born and raised in the FLDS. Uh, my dad's grew up as a believer in Leroy S. Johnson. And I uh, actually had a close relationship with him. And that continued over to Rowan Jeffs. My dad was very close to Rowan Jeffs. Rowan Jeffs is the one that, through placement marriage, placed my mom by the side of my dad. They got married really young when my dad was 22 and my mom was 19. My dad grew up in the era of Rowan Jeffs. Start, he started to raise his family, let me say that. He started to raise his family with my mom in the latter years of Roland Jeff's life. So by the time I was a young kid, Roland Jeff's was, uh, had passed away in 2002, I believe. Warren Jeff's became the prophet. Shortly before Roland Jeff's died, then um, my dad took was placed with a second wife, my, Warren Jeff's, and Roland Jeff's gave my dad a second wife, um, who happened to be the niece of Warren Jeff's. So she was, she's actually tied into this whole story of our own family story quite well. And so that's an important part. She's related to Warren Jeff. She's the niece of Warren Jeff. And it was really quite an interesting sort of marriage. And my dad did not necessarily feel comfortable with the parameters of how everything happened, um, but sort of was, I don't know if forced is the right word, but forced for lack of better words, into this scenario where he marries an 18-year-old girl. Um, and at this point, my dad had a nice young family and he was living life really well and had his own business. And he just, he felt like that taking on a second wife would interrupt certain things with uh, what he was doing with his own family. But nonetheless, he still did it. Warren Jeffs now becomes a prophet and everything that he has done starts to take place and uh my dad starts you know drawing himself close to the bishop of the church and making himself available to be one of those used brethren and for people that have come out of the flds they understand this but uh you know you 
you sort of pay lots of tithing and you drink coffee with the good guys and you find yourself in society where you can be respected and, and you kind of just move up the social ladder to the point that you're close to the bishop. And Warren Jeffs called his brother Lyle to become the bishop. And Lyle Jeffs plays a key role in all of this as well. He is uh, He was Warren Jeffs' general. If you were to compare Warren to Hitler, then Lyle would be Hitler's best general. He was the one that enforced all of Warren's rules. Well, my dad was close with Lyle. He knew Lyle from, he went to college with Lyle, things of that nature. And so when Lyle became the bishop, my dad took a place in the bishop's circle, and he was one of the men that uh, the bishop would use to do his dirty work and things of that nature. But anyways, as my dad, as as time progressed and all of this crazy stuff started happening in the religion, and after the 2008 raid happened, I think my dad started getting a pretty clear picture that, you know, that something was going to happen to his family inevitably, whether or not it wasn't a matter of if it was going to happen. It was just simply a matter of when. And I'm trying to think of a good way to lead into this, to the story of separation, because it's so intricate. So I'm just trying to gloss over, you might say so. Let me know, Wendy, if I'm if we need. No, to this go into is more great. Detail. Um, and if you want me to interject more, I can. But I think you're telling the story really well. Okay, if I fast forward, we'll just fast forward to the point that I'm at this time, 14 years old. And if I could get the year right, and maybe I'm not going to be able to say the year because I'm not going to get it right. I think it's 2012 <laughs> or 2013. But you're, but you're 14. You're a kid, and and just yeah. briefly tell us what it's like at 14 years old. What is expected of an FLDS kid? What's a normal, good, obedient FLDS kid supposed to be doing? Well, um, I wouldn't know because I was the bad kid. So, <laughs> but no, I highly I, doubt that. <laughs> so it just. You know, it's uh, being obedient to your parents. You're always involved in good works in the community. On You give yourself for Saturday work projects. Um, you're not hanging out with bad friends. You're maintaining your priesthood calling. You are uh, taking on a lot of responsibility. You're, if you're 14, you're more than likely out working. And in my case, I started working when I was 11 and 12 years old. So uh, when I was 14, I was working constantly uh, on work crews, and I would come home in the on the weekends, um, and a lot of times I would be able to be home every night. My dad didn't like us to go out of town for long stretches of time, but uh, taking a lot of responsibility on. But in my my scenario, I was I was living my best possible life. I was doing what I was supposed to do, and I was responsible and I love the gospel and I love Warren Jeffs and I love to pray about him and I was very devoted to the idea of becoming a good and great man in, in the FLDS religion and, and uh, very involved in my church duties and very unaware of everything that was going on around me. I was very innocent but very, very naive and unaware to the tragedy that was taking place right before my eyes. Luckily, I had a parent that was, and my dad was very aware of what was going on. And and uh, as time progressed, then people really close to us that we thought never in our wildest dreams would have ever lost their families, 
let me let me go back and say this as well. When men first started getting kicked out, the men that were losing their families and being kicked out, a lot of them were lesser than in the social groups. So they weren't high priorities. They weren't men that were well-respected. So it wasn't a shock when they left or it wasn't like a big gap. But fast forward to when I was 14 and 15 years old, men really near and dear to us as families, men well-respected in the community were being kicked out and losing their families. And things got really serious. You know, there was almost a derogatory air about the community. Everything was so quiet. At this point, Warren Jeffs had created the answer them nothing rules. And so we didn't talk to outsiders. Um, so yeah, so wait, talk. hold on, let me pause and explain that. So answer them nothing was something that Warren Jeffs started, which was if an outsider asks you anything, you answer them nothing, right? Exactly. Well, yeah, you just, you don't talk to them. You don't approach them. Very limited interaction. But the other thing that started happening was because of these, I want to say it's because of the confession letters, a large part of it. There wasn't even a lot of interaction between the uh, FLDS people themselves. He had taken away church. So a lot of, a lot of times we didn't get to go to church. And Warren Jeffs had obviously banned all the social things we did, banned the dancing and banned the parades or anything of that nature. There was just the people in general were not happy. They were very somber. They were very serious. They went about their labors with a sort of determined air. There was no, uh, like, I could see the joy fading out of my own life. At, that, at age of 14, my life started getting pretty depressing and difficult in a lot of sense of the word um, because you know it just there was kind of a bleak outlook on the community um and because and it's obviously because of the family situation but uh my grandfather who has over 80 biological children um he got kicked out and my grandma's got sent away as well and my grandma from my dad's side was just she was just a saintly lady we all loved her and it was it was a shock to see her get sent away and it was a shock to see our grandfather that we loved and respected get sent away and it really shook us up as a family and at that point my dad i think felt felt some serious serious concerns about the FLDS at that point and around that time, and I told this in our first podcast, but around that time, my dad had a had a dream that really pushed him over the edge. And he interpreted it that it was his duty and responsibility to remove his family from the town of Colorado City, for one, and for two, remove us from the FLDS religion. My dad was willing to take very desperate measures to save and protect his family from, you know, the absolute catastrophic damage that was taking place among the community and he had the eyes to see it it was it was really affecting him him losing his grand his father and his mother so um, and really really quick as a side note your dad Dwayne was just on the any uh biography of Warren Jeffs that I was on so uh-huh. you can see um Dwayne Dwayne speaking about this it's kind of cool yeah that's it's amazing well he uh, 
he had this dream and it really set in stone for him that he needed to move forward and remove his family. So we went back to Omaha, Nebraska. Well, when this took place, then my mom went back with most of the second mom's children came back with us as well. And the second mom stayed in the community with a couple of her children. And um, so my we went back to Omaha and we lived back there in peace for some months. You know, there was because and I want to I want to clarify how powerful this is. When you're when you're involved in this religion, when the person near and dearest to you, you know, my dad was breaking new ground by him taking a stand against Warren Jeffs. And he wasn't aware. I don't think my dad was aware of how his family was going to react to it. But they reacted negatively. Rose, my second my second mom, my dad's second wife, she started sending letters to the bishop derogatory toward my dad at the time that we went back to Omaha. And the, she said certain things that would indict my dad, um, possibly paint him to be a bad man. And then we got back to Omaha, and dad very gradually started easing us into the outside world. He took me and my brothers to go watch a football game on the TV, and, and uh, he started letting us listen to the radio a little bit and, and things of that nature. My mom got really, really concerned, but this was unbeknownst to us as a family. I was unaware of this at the time that it was happening, but she got really concerned and there was some differences taking place between my mom and my dad. And my mom made a very painful decision, but she decided to contact the bishop. And this happened to be the all too tragic move. And my mom was you know, I'm not painting my mother out to be a bad person in this. And I hope everyone listening understands what a beautiful human being my mother is. And and let's but just say it. that for anyone that wants more context on this, you do talk about this in, in your story, which I'm going to link, which you yes. sort of explain where you feel like your mom was coming from, where your dad was coming from and things like yes. that. But she made a decision to contact the bishop and to reach out. And she felt as if my dad no longer held priesthood. This is very important because if you no longer hold priesthood, you're no longer worthy of a family and you're no long, longer worthy to lead a family. So talk because to me about that, that doctrine really quick. Where where does this come from? Like I said, we know that Brigham Young was practicing it to an extent, um, but and, and, and there actually is some stuff coming from the journal discourses where journal right. discourses where Brigham Young is like, oh, you know what, if you you know, aren't worthy of your wife, we'll give her to someone else. But where mm -hmm. does, where are you guys deriving this from? Are these lectures and well, sermons? Well, it's probably from the, it's, it's from the exact same text of the early Mormons, except it's interpreted so realistically. That's where Warren Jeffs was beautiful. What he did was he created an interpretation that made perfect sense with scripture that already existed. So, uh, Earlier brethren in the FLDS talked about it a little bit, and then Warren Jeffs created more emphasis on it, and then it, that became the literal interpretation, was if you are not following the exact commands of the prophet, you're not living up to your priesthood, because the priesthood channels through the prophet, 
And if you don't follow the prophet, then you're not worthy of priesthood. It's as easy as that. It's as simple as you not doing what you're supposed to. You don't hold priesthood. It's not you've sinned. It's you don't hold priesthood. So my mom developed a feeling that my dad no longer held priesthood. I'm trying, I'm trying to, uh, you know, if I, if I take five seconds and decide if I, I want to share some of these details, but, um, yeah, you can take all the time you need if you need me to, there, to. there was a, during that time, my mother, um, had colon cancer. So she, she told us, she told us when we were back in Omaha that she had got colon cancer and she was going to have to go in and have it removed out of her colon and go through some surgeries. So when she went to go into her surgery to get her colon cancer removed, uh, my dad asked her if she wanted a blessing. She told my dad she didn't want a blessing, but she could hold his hand and pray with him, but she didn't want a blessing from him. I think that's when my dad knew that something was seriously wrong. Well, a week after, I believe it was a week or even two weeks after, during this period of time, my mom contacted the uh, the bishop and was speaking with him. Well, the bishop informed my mom that she was right, that my dad did not hold priesthood, and that it was her responsibility to come and gather herself with the priesthood. And just as so, a side note, if we know more about your dad's story, your dad was a threat to the leadership for a few reasons, right? Yes. Well, and, and mainly because he was, if you step out of the general directive of the church, you're on, on auto, an automatic threat. And so simply by his actions of taking us back to Omaha, he was out. There was no return for my dad. At that point, his actions solidified in the minds of the leaders of the FLDS that he was doomed. He was done for. He was considered an apostate. And we'll get into that a little later on as, you know, what the way they viewed my dad after he was kicked out. But my mom makes these dis decisions and these are very crucial. And they're all too common among the stories of all the FLDS. My mother announces to the family that she has cancer. She goes into surgery and has it removed. And only a week or so later, we were all shaken up still as a family. There was one morning that we woke up, went to work, us three, myself, my older brother, my younger brother. About about noon or so, I get a I get missed calls from my dad and and uh he tells us to come home. And we get home and they're cars are in the driveway and everything seems normal and we go inside and it's dead silent and my mom had you know when we were all gone my me and my two brothers and my dad she had packed up and and took the kids and had been taken away and went back into the community and it's hard to describe the kind of pain and anguish that you feel as a child to feel the sense of abandonment to feel the sense of not being able to call or or communicate with the ones you love it's it's a it's a horrible horrible feeling for any any single person to feel it's very very real for these children that get to experience this 
and it really takes a dramatic effect on any person that goes through this. And I'm emphasizing my own personal story because not because I feel victimized, but because there's hundreds and hundreds of other young people that are so dramatically affected by these things. I watched what happened to my dad and that very, that very night we, we stayed, we all slept in the exact same room and, you know, we would even, I would get up to go to the restroom and my dad would send my brother to go walk with me just across the hallway to go to the restroom because you, there's just a fear. If you walk out of the room, you're never going to see each other again. It's this dramatic, dramatic effect that takes, that takes place. It's just, it's so tragic and so hard to, that gut wrenching feeling is just, it's horrible. But my mom goes back to the community and uh, my dad communicates with the leadership of the church and they let him know that uh, he is to be sent away and he's not to talk to his family again and he's to leave Omaha and not speak to us as boys and that we as boys were supposed to finish up the work we had back there and then head back to the community. So even though I went through the experience of Omaha a month later, then I got to see my mom again and I got to go be with my family again, but that was without my dad. And at that point, then the villa, you know, the, your dad is a bad person conversation started to take place. My dad went from the very most important thing in my life to the least important thing. And I even thought of him as that I had this, my entire thought process changed where I viewed my dad as a bad man. And I was willing to accept that. So um, I let's dig into that for just a minute, because what you're talking about is very painful to you personally, especially talking to you about it and sitting across the table from you and hearing it. And it's hard for me to wrap my mind around. But then I think about my own experience. I mean, I, I don't talk about this very publicly at all. But my own dad uh, didn't pay tithing. He, he went to church, but he didn't come to my wedding. And mm. I remember before I was married, yelling at him and crying and being like, you are so selfish. How could you do this? Yes. And I think back on it now and I think, how could I ever let, you know, my religion get in the way of a relationship like that? But at the time, right. it just, you know, it it felt like the right thing to do. And the way that I internalized my worldview, it made it made sense that my dad was uh, offending me rather than um, yes. me not being able to understand his perspective. Well, that's that's a great way of, of putting a view, internalizing your view of your world. And that's that's the easy and simple justification for it is that you're in the right and they're in the wrong. It's black and white. It's very simple psychologically for you to interpret. You You don't have love. You don't have care. You don't have respect. It's right or wrong. And so if your dad is on the wrong side, then he's wrong. And so you immediately can change your psychology because the most important thing in your life was Warren Jeffs, the gospel of Jesus Christ and how you're living it. So dad doesn't take precedence to the gospel. Dad didn't take precedence to Warren Jeffs. So even the power and influence he had over his own children was taken over by Warren Jeffs. So and I want to emphasize that this as well, because that's why Warren Jeffs was so powerful is he removed any 
sort of influence from any adult, um, the ultimate thing became Warren Jeffs. So he had power and influence over people's marriages, people's relationships. Uh, it ultimately boiled down to, well, if you believe and follow Warren Jeffs in here and do what he says. And if he says your dad's a bad man, well, by damn, your dad is a bad man. And people really bought into it, and I myself included. Um, so I miss my dad tremendously, but I never I stopped viewing him as the good guy I'd always viewed him as. That didn't mean I didn't miss him, and that didn't mean that I desperately needed him, because I definitely did, and I felt the pain of that. But I viewed him as a as a lesser man. I stopped respecting him as a man. But I go back to the community, and when this took place, so if I can get the timelines right, my mom, my mom leaves Omaha. Uh, my dad gets sent away a couple of days later. He heads back to the community. Now, dad drives. Dad drives to the uh, Colorado City. And he doesn't go and see my mom, but he goes and sees Rose, his second wife. And unbeknownst to myself, Rose had received her own directive from the bishop because she had been speaking to the bishop as well. But Rose was on the wrong side of things. Rose's dad happens to be a man by the name of Hiram Jeffs. And he's Warren Jeffs' brother. And Warren... Warren has a personal vendetta. Yes, against Hiram in particular. And anyways, he tells he sends a revelation out that says all of Hiram's children's were children were to be sent away and to go cleanse themselves of their father. So Rose now, my dad and Rose had a young they had seven children together and Rose had a three month old baby. Her name's Tammy. She gets a commandment to be sent away. And she talks to the bishop, and the bishop tells her that she is to leave all of her children, including the baby. So my dad drives to the community when he got kicked out. And they take Rose's children. Now, the oldest of Rose's kids would have been no older than nine years old. Very young, innocent children that needed the protection of their parents were by no sense of the word ready to go on their own. The, like I said, the oldest one was no older than nine years old and a three-month-old baby. And they take all of the children except the baby and they drop them off at my dad's older brother's home. Now, this is a home with five or six moms and 30 to 40 kids. So they're being dropped off at a home that's like a zoo. They're going to be trampled over. They're not going to be taken care of. There's nobody there to watch and watch out for them. But they, you know, it's almost like a scene out of a movie where the parents walk up to the door, drop the kids off with a suitcase, have a little hug and cry session, get in a car and drive away and never see them again. But they take the... Well, and I have to say, Little I have to baby. say this really quick. Sorry, when you're a kid, you have no control over your environment. That's the one thing None that whatsoever. kids have. Yeah. yeah, so they don't know if this is a permanent thing. They don't know if there's an end point. They don't know why. 
they only know the limited information that they're getting. And I can't imagine, you know, when you were telling me this initially, it just sort of settled into my bones. Like, I can't imagine the trauma that that, you know, you're a six-year-old kid. How do you even begin to make sense of this? Oh, yeah. I think that there's probably stages to it. And the main first stage would be complete bewilderment and shock. But it's a incredibly, incredibly dramatic thing for these young children to experience. I mean, it cannot be overstated how decimating it is to the psychology of of a child to go through. It's as tragic as thing. It's similar to kidnapping in that, in the sense that they're being thrust into an unknown environment against their will. And the people that the only people that they know will love and protect them are ripped out from their lives and they have no way of contacting them. So they're being put into it's it's some seriously, seriously dramatic effects that take place to these children. But to continue with the story, um, they take the young baby and they drop her off uh, at another at another home with another lady. The baby, the baby gets gets placed in an environment with not one of her family is there around her, not a single member. So she's in a home completely devoid of any familiarity, any brother or sister, no one, no one around her. And then this goes on for a full year and a half, at least. My dad got kicked out. I myself, my personal story, I covered quite a bit in the first podcast, but uh, approximately two to three months after this experience took place, where uh, my dad got kicked out and Rose got sent away, I myself was called in for an interview before the bishop. And in the interview, the bishop told me that I was... uh, not doing what I was supposed to, not living up to who I was supposed to be, and uh, sent me away as well. And kicked me out, told me I had a day to leave the community um, and, and that I was not to talk to my family again. And um, that's what took place. So I got, I got kicked out when I was 16. And I went out and found a place with my, my dad and Logan. Uh, my dad had an apartment there, and so I went up after probably three or four months of him being kicked out. So now when I, I have arrived, to ask at this point, do you still, as you're being sent away, do you now sympathize with your dad, or is there something in the back of your head that says he is still wicked? Well, it wasn't I ever viewed him as wicked. I just viewed him, didn't respect him. I didn't think that he was a bad guy I just didn't respect him with the same amount of respect that I had previously my dad was my greatest hero and he still is to this day but I had this special special bond with my dad and then when he gets kicked out I don't feel that way toward him anymore and so even when I come up and find him when he's living in Logan I still don't feel that same special feelings more and and also I'm in the battle of a lifetime. I've I, when I got kicked out, it was even harder than the way I felt in Omaha was 
was how I felt when I got kicked out. It was the most painful thing I've ever gone through in my entire life. And, you know, I, I was in, I was, I had my own battles to go face, but when I got up to Logan, I realized my dad was in a really, really rough shape. And this strong, powerful individual um, that was a business owner, that was sharp, very brilliant, smart, well-respected. And I come up to Logan to find a shell of a man who his health was breaking down. His mental state was deteriorating rapidly. Um, he was broken down in, to such a degree that he could barely even think straight. It was a struggle for him to get through each day because he was wrapped with pain and torment of experiencing what just took place in his own life. Um, the dramatic effects being such that, uh, you know, it's still, he's still in recovery mode. It's been five years since he lost, initially lost his family, close to six years. So let's just pause for a moment. And I want everyone to, to who is listening to take a moment, pause the podcast. And I want you to sit in silence for a minute and honestly think about this because I do feel like the people in the FLDS deserve to have this struggle honored. I mean, what it, what happened to your dad was he essentially lost his entire family because another man in the community said that he should. And with that, not only the grief and the torment of losing your family and feeling betrayed by your wife and, and, and things like that, but you have the shame and the stigma from, from not only your community, but your own children. Like you said, you didn't respect your dad. And I don't, I don't think outsiders can fully grasp this because it's such a foreign thing, but yeah, it is so common in this community. I mean, every single person talks about it and when they talk about it, they talk about it like it was just something that happened on a Tuesday because it's so normal now yeah. in the town. Well, and, and we haven't got to the psychological effects after the fact, which we hopefully we'll get to. But a lot of the pain that my dad was experiencing was knowing that his family viewed him as less than, knowing that a family no longer respected him. That was just as hard as him losing his family was the fact that he sat there and think that his young son, that he tried his entire life to raise properly, thinks that he's a bad man. That's just as hard for him as to actually not be around his children, is to know that they're thinking he's a bad man. And so it's a that, that part of it where people are able to just flip that switch so quick, um, you know, for the person on the other end of the switch, I got to witness it with my dad. I got to, I got to get a picture into the kind of effect that it does to a man. When you're in your mid forties, my dad was having health problems. Like it was in his mid eighties, his body shut down on him. It just dramatic, dramatic effects that this kind of experience will have on a person. Um, especially for a gentleman like my dad that, gave his entire life for his family his family like so many other fathers out there meant the world to him and he was willing to go to the ends of the earth to protect them and to take care of them and give them shelter and then it was all ripped away from him and that's where that 
you know, that extreme pain when t- pain and torment comes from. So I got to watch that. And it was really hard for me to relate to my dad because he was going through this dramatic, dramatic thing. But what was taking place inside the community during that year and a half that uh, my dad and my mom were separated and my dad had been kicked out. My mom, when I at, right at, shortly after I was kicked out, my mom moved from the little home that she was living in and she was sent to go live with my dad's brother in a home with his family. So she was basically being asked to integrate her children into another man's family. And it was my dad's brother. And so there was nothing like sexual going on. My mom was not married to the man or anything of that nature, but uh, she moved, she moved in with him and his family. And this is where another one of those effects take place because obviously the father is no longer in the home and, and the kids no longer viewed my dad, my siblings no longer viewed my dad with a level of respect. And so now they're being asked to live in a completely unfamiliar circumstance. Now, the way my dad handled problems was going to be totally different than the way his brother handled the issues. So a lot of the children ended up getting punished unnecessarily and being thrown into situations that they didn't like. There were no, there was no protection for them. They couldn't go run to my mom. And then she gets moved from this, my dad's brother, Preston's home, and she gets moved to my dad's other brother's name, Richard home. And Richard is, is one of those men that uh, he's very military, militant in nature. And when my mom moved in, he separated her from her children by placing, uh, he had multiple wives and he would take age groups of children and assign them to the wives. So it wasn't my mom taking her care of her children. It was boys age eight to 14 would be under the care of one mother. And all of the boys would have to be under the care of that one mother. And so he separated and tried to integrate my own siblings and my mom into his way of doing things. Well, um, because of that, and he's an abusive person, there's these little children, my younger siblings that were uh, really young, four and five and six years old. They would get smacked across the head. They would get they would get spanked and they would get uh, unnecessarily punished um, by someone that they didn't have any respect for. And so it's a total different effect. So these kids are being psychologically damaged because of the scenario that they find themselves in and no fault of their own. And there's nothing they can do about it. And then I have my own sisters that uh, experience physical abuse from Richard and they're having to deal with these effects to this day because of these circumstances that they found themselves in. So let me let me just say this. So this this idea in Mormon polygamy, if you've been listening to the podcast and I would 
recommend that you go all the way back to episode one. Everyone hates it when I say that, but <laughs> this podcast really is meant to be listened to in order. It, it's a must. You, you've got to listen to all of them. The history is important. And so you do yeah. have examples of what they call dynastic marriages, dynastic ceilings, where a brother would die, let's say, or even Joseph Smith. Joseph Smith, you know, was, was murdered. And then yes. Heber J or Heber C. Kimball and, um, Brigham Young step in and they say, and we'll marry Jones these women. Yeah. yeah. And same thing. It was common to give if a brother died. And, and this is, I would say, common. It was not uncommon in the frontier period to, you know, be taken in by your husband's brother if if uh, your hus- something happened to your husband. So this was kind of practice. So it's right. not unusual that your family would have been reassigned to your uncle. And yet this was a no. bad move for everybody. Oh yeah, it's it's horrible, and and I know it's. I, I apologize in advance for for the listeners. It's I I speak of things that may not have your background of understanding, so it might be hard to understand or follow along. But uh, what what happened with our own family can be mirrored hundreds of times. Change the timelines, change the names, change this small circumstance here and there. But this is wave after wave after wave of families that experience this and each scenario is different but each child is being affected all the same um hundreds of children forced into circumstances that that psychologically have huge huge effects in their future life and like we talked about very early on in this podcast they're in their most vulnerable states um i have my my second mom siblings who i or my siblings for my second mom, who I love very dearly, every single one of them, they're being placed at an extremely young age in a completely unfamiliar territory. And they're with people that have never been around them either. And so they don't have any particular love or interest for these children. And so what ended up happening was that for five months, they got thrown around like ragdolls with nobody to care for them like it's like they're being orphaned into an orphan sheltered shelter it's it's that bad and when you're six years old when you're four years old when you're three years old how are you going to deal with that there's no there's no possible escape from it and the dramatic effect is cannot be overstated well and we have you know the victims aren't just the children although certainly certainly that but you know, I've heard so many stories of women right. who weeped until their eyes were bloodshot, who uh, would cry every night for their kids, but would hide it because they knew that if they hid their children, um, you know, or sorry, if they mourned for their children or expressed dissent, that it would, they could lose more things or it would be bad for their kids. And, yeah. um, you know, I know of stories of mothers who allowed their children to suffer a lot of abuses. And the reason why they did it is they were protecting their other kids. I mean, it's so complicated, but we want to look at, you know, these stories in isolation and say, why didn't you stand up for this? But we don't realize all the other dynamics that people are juggling. And, and then the fathers, like you were talking about with your dad, like the the toll affected his health, affected his psyche. It, like you said, we can't overstate it. Incredibly. Yeah. It's a, well, the the effects of it, I I I want to say the children were the most affected, but you—that's a tough sentence to say because 
I, I watched what my mom experienced. I watched what my dad experienced. I know what I experienced. I look at each one of my siblings and they experience different levels per their age group and per their particular circumstance. But it is across the board. Every single human being involved in this are absolutely affected. Now, we all have different methods of reacting to these scenarios as human beings and so you know some people their their option was to just you know act like to push the feelings out you know they to take all all emotion out of it and, and just simply say i believe in the prophet and this is my responsibility and that's it and to take that human emotion out of your life and you could argue that's exactly what this mental disease does to you is it takes human emotion out and puts number one, you know, following the prophet. And so these, the emotions that you would, you would think are meant to be experienced. Let's say when a father loses his family or such, you know, kids should mourn for months. Kids should feel dramatic pain and, and missing their dad. But, when it's black and white, they don't really experience that in the moment. It's only years after the fact that they realize how badly damaged they've become because of what has happened. For the first three years, they're completely fine with villainizing their dad in their own minds. In a lot of cases, I should say. That's not all across the board, but, you know, in some scenarios. So it, it's pretty it's pretty powerful in the sense that the people that experience this are largely blind to what they're actually going through and to what extent it is actually affecting the people around them and affecting them themselves. They're largely blind to it in the moment. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's, that sums it up, but then there's a lot of guilt when people get their families back together and a lot of trauma. Yeah. I mean, I don't even know how to say this, but I, I feel like some of these generations now who've grown up like this, don't even have the same sort of bonds with their parents that other kids would have because they've been separated so many times. Maybe, maybe you could talk yeah. about the impact you see it having on the community now, just in general. Well, to finish up my story in particular, my, my mother ended up leaving after a year and a half of being separated with my dad. And she took, her children and all of Rose's children except the young baby. Now, this is also very, still very sensitive to my family, um, and it's very painful for a lot of my siblings to even think about. But that young baby that was th three months old uh, when she was separated from her family is actually still in the community and is in an unknown location. We are unaware of where she is at currently. And she has not had contact with her family. And she is now five and a half years old and is yet to even know who her father or mother is. So this would be your sister, um, right? Your half sister? This would be my youngest sister, yes. And so she's now a young girl who is unaware of who her family is unaware of who her parents are and is just in the most vulnerable of conditions. There's nobody there to truly defend or protect her from any sin or evil that might be out there that will hurt her. 
Um, it's it's very tragic experience. Um, and the other thing is the FLDS people is they lock down to outsiders, and so one might argue, well, why don't you just go and get her? Well, it's just not that easy. It's not it's not just you drive over and pick her up. It's it's far more complicated than that. So, anyways, that's how. My own family has been affected by this. It's, it, you know, and, and I want to also emphasize that hundreds of other families are in these same scenarios. And my exam, my family is just an example of hundreds of other mothers, fathers, brothers, and sisters have lost, you know, taken just heavy, heavy losses, whether it be their entire family or most of their family or, their favorite brother or their mom. It's, you know, I have a lot of my friends that have gone six, seven years without even speaking to their parents, without even speaking to their brothers and sisters. So it's, it's a extremely dramatic thing. But, uh, talk about going to the aftermath of such of uh, what takes place after the fact is now you're, now, as a as a marriage, let's say with my mom and dad, you're you're completely deranged. You're you you've got to start from the ground up again, and that starts that's personally as well as relationships or anything. Um, after I got kicked out, I left the religion, and my family didn't speak to me for close to two years. I had no association with them whatsoever. And after my mom left and came and found my dad, it took them months to even allow my allow me to even enter their home. And all the while of them being out, they still viewed me as a bad person in some sense of the word. And so even after you even after you leave and all my family's out, you still have to go and repair all of these relationships. You have to break down their mental barriers they're they're still being affected by this religious viewpoint even though after they leave they still have this some thing in their head that they weren't willing to accept that i was just a normal kid out struggling like the rest of everybody and i wasn't some bad demon you know so it took me months to even break back into the love and care of my family it took them a while to come around to talking to me and and uh you know my dad is he's still in the process of putting his own mental psyche back together um my brothers and sisters experience their own set of anxiety and depression and and dramatic things that happen in their lives because of the effects of this and I would say it's a 10-year healing process. I mean, we're five years into this in our own family, and we're not even remotely close to being done with this healing. It, it, it affects your everyday life in a very dramatic way. Yeah, I th thank you for sharing that. I know that's been a very personal, painful thing for you and your family, but I think it illustrates exactly what it looks like on the ground. I mean, again, like you said, all the stories are so different, yeah. but... Yours illustrates, a, I mean, I, I think often about your siblings. I think about them often and them going to this new home for months and months and months without any parents, with yeah. no one telling them what's happening or why, except possibly shaming 
their mother to them or their father to them. And I just yes. don't think the outside world can fully grasp this. So what would you tell people that want to help? What would you tell them to do? Well, I don't, I don't know if I have any advice for outsiders that want to help because I, I'm not in that scenario. I'm, more, I'm someone that I have to give advice myself to myself. I have to help my own self because I certainly can't be viable to help others if I don't help my own self. And I think to start a healing process in your own heart and mind and to overcome the tragedy that this religion has caused in people's lives, it first starts with an acknowledgement that you are human and that those feelings that you feel inside you should be addressed. And you should start telling the truth to yourself. And for me, the truth that I started telling to myself was how important my family really was to me. And if I can clarify that in my mind and I can create supreme value in the thing that Warren Jeffs tried to take away from me, and that was my family, then I, I could be willing to forgive and move past the pain that my mother caused and move past the pain that I experienced being kicked out and everything and to understand that it's for it was all for a greater purpose of me being able to experience my family again and once i was able to solidify in my mind that the pain and it, the pain and hardship that i've went through has a reward at the end and if i'm willing to address those problems in my life and i'm willing to create relationships with my family that will be long lasting again. Um, I, I'm able to move on from that. And I'm, a, I'm able to make sure that it doesn't affect my everyday life. And where there has been healing has been with new, newfound relationships with the people that mean the most to me. My healing has taken place in such a beautiful way because now I have, a dad and a mom that I can pick up the phone and I can call at any time. And they are my greatest heroes. And they, they've become such a vital part in my life. And every single one of my brothers and sisters that I didn't talk to for two years, they were, you know, I could feel bad toward or I could have bad feelings against. I have beautiful relationships with them and we're all figuring out this struggle together. I think the worst thing you could possibly do is to walk up and to hold grudges toward the people that you should be healing with and to, uh, you know, take the approach that none of this stuff affected you. I think telling the truth to yourself that you actually are affected by this is a great start to having your mind opened and allow that healing process to take place in your own life which is not easy. Uh, you know, I, I watch with my family. Uh, they deal with things of their own. I have sisters that deal with, you know, my half sister in particular, they deal with some serious problems where they get anxiety attacks when their mother drops them off at school, because even though they know their mother's going to be back to pick them up, they don't know that. So they get anxiety because their mother once dropped them off and never picked them up again. And so every time they're on their own, 
they get anxiety attacks because they think their mother's never going to go back again. And so even though I personally don't have to deal with those psychological damages, those also exist in a tremendous way among all these people that have left the community and that have lost their families. Um, my Some of my sisters suffer from certain anxiety and depression issues because they were physically abused by my dad's brothers when my dad wasn't there. And they have to figure out their own ways of coping with those psychological issues. Um, but we need more love and we need more understanding. We need, we need more people from the FLDS to remove the cap of prejudice and start reaching out to one another to help each other move on from this. I think the biggest thing that I witness among FLDS people that have left is the same type of bigotry and ideology and hatred that existed inside the community. And there's no room for that. It's uncalled for. If we want to collectively move on from this experience, we have to do it together. And there has to be an understanding that it doesn't matter that our own personal circumstances, we, we collectively need to move on from this if we want to heal. Um, well, that's really that beautiful, Dan. Letting, Is there a way that people can directly I, support I you or your family? What's that? Is there a way that people can directly support you or your family? Well, I, we don't, I, I don't, I don't know if I have any, uh, you know, ways of doing that. We can, we can always, you could always reach out to us on, on our social media and we can interact, but I think it's also a, a personal journey in the sense that collectively we come together and support each other, but these, there's a lot of this battle as well that has to be fought internally. And, uh, you know, you can't, you can't do the same thing over and over and over again and expect different results. So if you're not finding healing in the current way that you're living your life, then we certainly need to be willing to look to ways to change and edit our actions that are going to provide healing. You know, I watch in my own, in my own family's life, uh, Sometimes my dad will associate with men that have left the community and he gets affected by associating with them because they have their own opinions and they have their own ideas of how he should be. And, and they will share those with him. And he thinks that he's a bad guy. And they, he thinks that because of what happened to his family, then he'll be, he'll come home and he'll feel guilty and ashamed. And, and think that he's a bad person. And, and those things are uncalled for. Um, I think that, I think that uh, when we come together and we start helping each other and we'll start seeing results in this healing process. Well, I, I really appreciate that. And I just want to throw out something. I'll, I'll put some links, but I know Roger Houle, um, I've mentioned him often on the podcast. He's a lawyer that does this work pro bono. Uh-huh. Through his office, he helps reunite um, mothers and their children and parents and their children. And so Roger has put in countless hours to, to this work, and as has Sam Brower. And so if you want to support them, you can 
you know, maybe throw some money at their law office. They they don't take yes, money. That, so I, I don't know how that works. But support their efforts and Cherish Families is on the ground too, providing resources and therapy and health care for these families who have dealt with all of this. Yeah. Well, I consider myself extremely blessed. Uh, first off, for, to have incredible parents that still have the strength and power to pull themselves out of this, you know, even though it's so dramatic and painful. The opposite is also true in the sense that. We've never been closer as a family, uh, and my my mom, mom and dad are such a vital part of every one of their child's life, and they have not abandoned their responsibilities and duties. But that is not the case with many of these families that have experienced this separation. There's still many children without grandparents, without fathers, without mothers, and those people they need your help. Um, you know, if you, let's say you're a random person and you run into a person that's XFLDS, reach out to them, be a friend to them. That's what it's happened in my own life. I couldn't have, I definitely could not be where I'm at without the kindness of outsiders, uh, reaching out and being a friend to me and putting a shoulder around me and, and, Given my life meaning again, making me feel like I was somebody that was important. Um, if you if you want to help those people, that's that's where you can start. Just being a friend. I know how much it did for me. But to these people that don't have fathers and don't have mothers, they they collectively need our help and they need our support. Um, you know, I I think it would be tremendous for for people to reach out and to help these organizations that are out on the ground helping these people. So. Well, again, thank you so much, Dan, for your bravery and courage and, and always just the affection in which you talk about these stories. I think that it's it, it's a service, your credit to your community and to your parents. And I just really appreciate you coming on. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate everybody having the patience to uh, listen to me ramble a little. So. <laughs>